there. This is Mark Bauerline with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. George Weigel joins us again today to discuss his new book, To Sanctify the World, The Vital Legacy of Vatican II, a book that mixes behind-the-scenes commentary with deeply learned discussions of Vatican history and the actual documents that came out of this historic meeting. Welcome, George, once again. Thank you, Mark. Good to be with you. You note at the start, from the mid-60s forward, the meaning and implications of Vatican II have been contested nonstop. Why has it been so, George? Why, Why no solid consensus about it all? I think, Mark, because there are confusions that I've tried to address in this book as to whether the council was necessary, what it actually taught, and how it ought to be properly interpreted. Now, Anyone who knows anything about the history of ecumenical councils uh, knows that they have always been preceded by controversy, conducted in controversy, and followed by controversy. So in that sense, there is nothing new about the contentiousness surrounding Vatican II. Uh, And I suspect, in fact, I expect, that that contentiousness will continue for another 30 or 40 years. But when the dust finally settles, I hope it will be clear that this uh, extraordinary event was indeed necessary for the health of the church, that it taught some very important things, and that those teachings were properly interpreted by two men of the council, Carol Wojtyla and Joseph Ratzinger, in their roles as Pope John Paul II and Pope Benedict XVI. Why did Pope John XXIII believe such a momentous step or gathering was needed at that time? Because he knew that Western civilization was in crisis. Uh, John XXIII was a different kind of pope. He was a student of history. He was a historian, not a theologian or a canon lawyer. He had spent most of his uh, career in the Vatican diplomatic service on the peripheries of Europe, in non-Catholic places, Bulgaria, Serbia, Turkey, the Balkans, Greece. He had experienced uh, both the First World War as a military chaplain and the Second World War in all of its horror in the Balkans, uh, trying to rescue Jews from the Nazi Holocaust. He had gone to France as nuncio after the war and seen how 150 years of controversy between French royalists and French republicans had paralyzed the church there, unable to respond to the 
siren songs of either Marxism or existentialism. And then he had gone to Venice as, as an elderly patriarch and cardinal and, and correctly sensed that Italian Catholicism, for all of its seeming vibrancy, was actually something of a hollow shell. So he thought the church in facing a world that had just about destroyed itself twice in 30 years, the church needed a new experience of Pentecost. It needed a new evangelical energy. And frankly, it needed new ways to speak old truths in a world in which the simple catechism answers of the Council of Trent were no longer persuasive. So he had the courage to act on all that. You go back to previous councils, all the way to the first one, in order to place Vatican II in historical context. It's very useful uh, as a history of things. What are some of the conclusions you draw about Vatican II relative to previous councils? Vatican II was uh, different uh, in in a significant in two significant ways. Uh, every previous council, although one might argue that Vatican I was another exception to this, every previous council had been called to deal to deal with an internal church dividing issue, like Nicaea I. What is the relationship? of Jesus Christ to God the Father, or Chalcedon 451. What is the relationship of humanity and divinity in Christ? And obviously, uh, Trent in the 16th century, how how do we deal with the sundry Protestant reformations? Um, Vatican II was called to renew the church to deal with an external crisis. The crisis of a world that had had literally lost its mind and, uh, as I said a moment ago, had just about destroyed itself in two world wars, was on the brink of nuclear holocaust, um, and uh, seemed to have forgotten the possibility that there might be answers to that civilizational crisis in biblical religion. The second thing that was quite different about the Second Vatican Council is that unlike every other council, including in this case Vatican I, um, it did not provide the authoritative keys for its own interpretation. That had happened in several different ways in the past. If you want to know what Nicaea I and 325 was about, you read the creed that it wrote, which... Christians of of many confessions recite on Sunday. If you want to know what Chalcedon in 451 was about, you read its dogmatic definition of the two uh, uh, natures, divine and human, within the one person of Jesus Christ. Other councils had told you what they meant by condemning heresies or by writing canons into the legal system of the church. Trent did just about all of that and added another kind of key, the catechism of the Council of Trent, the Roman catechism. Vatican II did none of that. It defined nothing. It condemned nothing uh, in a formal dogmatic way. It did not write canons into the law of the church. It didn't have a catechism, and it didn't write a creed. So that phenomenon of the council without keys 
actually frames the whole last third of, of my book. And I try to show in there how those authoritative keys were provided by two men who had played active roles at Vatican II, the then Archbishop of Krakow, Karol Wojtyla, and a then young German theologian, Joseph Ratzinger, in the 35 years that they were concurrently Pope John Paul II and Pope Benedict XVI. In your discussion, you assert bluntly that in the mid-20th century, Christendom was over. Those are your words, George. What do you you mean by that? It was over. I mean, um, actually, what, what, what John Henry Newman meant in a remarkable sermon in 1873, when he told um, the good bishops of England, that Catholic bishops of England, that the church had never faced what it was going to face in the near-term future, which was a world simply irreligious. Church had long known how to deal with paganisms of various sorts, but however goofy their religiosity was, various paganisms at least understood that this world exists within uh, the ambit of a a larger and more comprehensive or transcendent world. Uh, The loss of that sense of the transcendent, uh, Newman believed, would have really bad consequences in society, culture, and politics, as indeed it did uh, in the first half of the 20th century when the Western world became a kind of circular firing squad. Um, that was This was something really new. I think John XXIII intuited this too, uh, perhaps particularly out of his French experience. I mean, when you th- you think of being in France from 1946 to 1951 or 52, what were the dominant intellectual, cultural constructs of that time? Well, it was either communism or existentialism. So you get to choose between Marx and Sartre, and and neither one of those neither one of those philosophies is able to imagine a world that has windows and doors and skylights. Uh, All they can imagine is a closed-in claustrophobic world. And that claustrophobia was leading to the phenomenon of the circular firing squad. So it was to call, particularly Western civilization, back to its biblical roots that John XXIII thought the Second Vatican Council was necessary. And you say that nobody understood this at the time better than this young father, uh, Father Ratzinger, correct? Yeah, I think that's right. This, you know, this young Bavarian theologian who was in his early 30s, early to mid 30s, I think experienced in his bones this problem of the end of Christendom. I mean, he had grown up, Ratzinger, in a, in a kind of intact Catholic culture in Bavaria. That had been destroyed first by Nazism, then by the Second World War. And um, he was very aware from his seminary days and the immediate post-World War II period on that the church had to find a new vocabulary in which to address a world become simply irreligious, as Newman put it in 1873. Ratzinger, as you know, was a keen student of Newman. Uh, 
and took great satisfaction in beatifying him in, in 2010 when he was Pope Benedict XVI. And that is why Ratzinger and others thought that the council had to speak in a voice modulated by the Bible, by the fathers of the church, and less in the voice of scholastic syllogisms, uh, the voice that had come to dominate the Roman theology of uh, the latter years of Pope Pius XII. Uh, and that is what Ratzinger and and those he worked with at the council, Yves Congar, Gerard Philippe, and, and others, uh, brought into the council documents and why the, the, the principal documents, dogmatic constitution on the church, dogmatic constitution on divine revelation, read so wonderfully richly today because they are in that perennial vocabulary of scripture and patristics that has, has been able to speak across two millennia of human experience. Tell, tell us, for, for those like me, whose Catholic knowledge is not what it should be, what was the syllabus of errors? Well, the syllabus of errors was a, uh, a kind of memorandum that was attached to an encyclical called Quanta Cura, of Pope Pius IX, in which he outlined what he thought were the principal errors of a world become simply irreligious. Uh, a lot of the pieces of that, uh, as I showed, and I hope I showed in the book, The Irony of Modern Catholic History, um, were unobjectionable. Um, no serious Jew or Christian could accept the notion condemned in the syllabus of errors that the Bible is simply a collection of fables with no historical value. Um, no serious small d Democrat could accept the notion um, condemned in the uh, syllabus of errors that the state is everything, that human rights derive from the state, uh, that the institutions and um, natural associations of civil society like the family, voluntary associations, religious organizations are subjects of the state in a, in a dramatic and radical way. So there was a lot of stuff that was completely unobjectionable in the syllabus of errors, but it ended with this blunderbuss uh, final proposition uh, that condemned the notion that the Roman pontiff should uh, accommodate himself to liberalism, modern civilization, and everything else. And it just, that was just ridiculous and unnecessary. And it created this image of a church that being incapable of speaking to modernity was simply prepared to condemn modernity root and branch, when in fact the most admirable things in modernity its uh, concern for the dignity of every individual human person, uh, its insistence on uh, freedom of conscience and religion are in fact derived from Christianity, uh, not solely from the Enlightenment. So the celibus of errors has become a kind of boogeyman in um, the polemic against uh, all forms of Orthodox Christianity uh, in recent uh, decades, 
Uh, I suggest people read it, and they'll probably agree with 65 of the 70 propositions in it. Well, let's move forward to a group you call the Catholic Modernists. Who were they, and what were they about? Well, this 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 is interesting to to look at in light of Vatican II because uh, Catholic modernism was an inadequate attempt to deal with this problem of a world simply irreligious, uh, mounted in France, Germany, and England uh, in the in the mid to in the in the latter part of the nineteenth century. Um, the principal figures, the two principal figures were a French biblical scholar named Alfred Loisy and a, uh, an English Jesuit named, named George Tyrrell. And in their attempts to create a, a Catholic mode of, of intellectual conversation that could get to grips with the challenges of modernity, particularly new methods of reading ancient texts, the rise of natural sciences, the paradigm of all knowledge. Um, they, they just simply went off the reservation in terms of any concept of Christian orthodoxy. And both ended up, you know, outside uh, the communion of, of the church. So that was a false attempt to get to grips with, with the challenges of modernity, whereas Vatican II and particularly those two dogmatic constitutions I mentioned, Lumen Gentium, the dogmatic constitution on the church, and Dave Erbum, the uh, dogmatic constitution on divine revelation, uh, were much deeper, broader, uh, more thoughtful uh, attempts to address modernity in a, um, in a, vocabulary that the modern world could engage, and in doing so, to reintroduce the modern world to Jesus Christ. I think this this is a feature of Vatican II that is not sufficiently underscored and that I try to underscore in the book, and that is that the Second Vatican Council was radically Christocentric. It asked the church to become less ecclesiocentric and more Christocentric to bring people to the church through a prior personal encounter with the incarnate Son of God. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Uh, now, you, you... You refer to these decades, latter 19th, early 20th century, up to the mid 20th century, really, as a great flowering of Catholic intellectual thought and creativity. How, how does this coincide with the decline of Christendom? Christendom Were they in open battle with secularization? I would, I would not think of it so much in terms of battle as <clears throat> conversation leading to conversion. Uh, there really was a phenomenal Catholic intellectual renaissance in the late 19th and, and early 20th centuries that, that made Vatican II possible 
that gave it the vocabulary it was looking for, the conceptual categories it needed. And this flourishing took place across any number of fields, uh, including philosophy, theology, literature, the arts, music. Um, you know, this was uh, quite striking. And while some would doubtless look at it as the final bright burning of the lamp of Christendom before it went out, I would rather think of it as as the uh, you know the lighting of the candle in the darkness uh, to lead a way forward beyond uh, beyond that uh, darkness. But when you know when we say Christendom is over, Mark, what we're talking about is such a the kind of close synthesis between culture, society, politics, and 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 the Catholic Church that really has not existed for a very long time. That existed for about at, at about its most developed point in the 13th century, uh, but that is not likely to come back today, and therefore the Church has to find new ways of relating to society, culture, and politics, rather than uh, those ways to which uh, people had been accustomed in the high Middle Ages. You regard Pope Pius as responding in powerful ways to the trends of anti-colonialism and globalization during those those mid-century decades. How so? Well, it did in that uh, Pope Pius uh, XI was uh, a very interesting character in many ways. Um, And he was determined to separate the church from colonial power in Africa and Asia by creating native hierarchies. Uh, He ordained the first five Chinese bishops himself in St. Peter's in the 1930s. He insisted on the appointment of and the building up of native clergy in Africa, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> where um, the colonial powers were much more comfortable with sending in bishops from the Metropolitan Center. And then, you know, the successors of those bishops became the African and Asian bishops at the Second Vatican Council. So Decisions taken in the 1930s had a real effect in the 1960s in terms of creating a genuinely universal or global Catholicism. Vatican II was not only the largest assembly uh, with real legislative power in human history, it was the most diverse. Um, And it was certainly the most diverse uh, ecumenical council in the history of the church. When the Pope sent out to all the bishops the idea of a council to come, what kind of initial response or expectation was there? Well, if you look at the first eight or nine volumes of what's called the Acts of the Second Vatican Council, which is this vast 30-volume collection of documents, speeches, uh, etc., the first eight volumes of that are the responses of the bishops of the world to the commission preparing the council's request for agenda items. And I would say probably about 60% at least, maybe even closer to 70% of the, 
of the bishops did not expect what the Second Vatican Council became. They expected a, a kind of you know, short three or four, five month house cleaning, housekeeping council that would tweak a few things in, in uh, the way the church uh, conducted its liturgy, the way the church operated administratively, and then everybody would go home. Uh, but once they got to Rome and actually met each other, these 2,500 bishops seem to have caught the idea that there was more to do here than simply tinker with the machinery. Uh, there, was a, there was a rethinking of the church's approach to a vast new set of challenges uh, required, and they set about doing that. So the, the council that happened was probably was not probably was certainly not the council that sixty to seventy percent of the world episcopate expected in nineteen sixty two, uh, but it was certainly the council that the church needed, and frankly, the world needed as well. And who was this curious fellow, George Xavier Wren? Uh, Father Francis X. Murphy was an American redemptorist who was teaching uh, in Rome at the time. He was a very gifted journalist. He had a unique capacity to translate complicated theological material into a, into a vocabulary accessible to non-theologians. And he became the Vatican correspondent for the New Yorker. The New Yorker magazine under the pseudonym Xavier Wren, Xavier being his middle name and Wren being his mother's maiden name. And while the first Xavier Wren articles in the New Yorker were, I think, quite acceptable uh, and indeed quite insightful, over time, Xavier Wren or Frank Murphy, as we knew him before his death, um, it became an ideologue. And his, his reporting on the council was, was very much distorted by this attempt to divide all things Catholic into categories of left and right, liberal and conservative, good progressives, bad troglodyte traditionalists. He set in media concrete that taxonomy, which is completely false. As Cardinal Francis George of Chicago used to say, the Catholic Church is not about left or right. It's about true or false. And, uh, and yet the Xavier Wren taxonomy of liberal and conservatism can, uh, continues to dominate media coverage of the church today and, and therefore continues to distort this. So while he was a very engaging guy and a great raconteur and a wonderful gossip, uh, he, he actually did a lot of damage and uh, uh, we're suffering from that damage to this day. Well, what impact did the decline and death of John the 23rd have on the proceedings? I don't think I don't think the death of John the 23rd between the first and second periods of the council um, jeopardized his intention for the council. Paul VI, his successor. Uh, at the beginning of the second session, three months after he had been elected pope, reminded the council of that Christocentric and evangelical intention of John the Twenty Third. 
And I, my judgment uh, recorded in the book is that Paul VI did a very capable job of guiding the council to its uh, conclusion. Uh, the questions about Paul VI involve uh, how well he led the implementation of the council after the council, but he did a very able job of guiding the council to its conclusion over three very busy and sometimes stormy uh, sessions in the fall months of 1963, 64, and 65. There is much more to the book, especially, as I said at the start, uh, the detailed commentaries on specific documents that came out of uh, Vatican II. Uh, the book, though, is To Sanctify the World, The Vital Legacy of Vatican II. George Weigel, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mark. Good to be with you. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.